kidding. Hey, Nick. Do you remember Jesus Freak? Oh, God, I forgot about that. Welcome to Oh, God, I Forgot About That, a podcast that explores artifacts from the turn of the millennium Christian culture. So, Teddy, my first question to you is, did you actually forget about this or just wish you had? Yeah, I absolutely did not forget about it. <laughs> so, How could you? <laughs> so I listened to Jesus Freak uh, for the first time probably in years in preparation for our podcast episode. And, you know, just to get in the mood, right? And I was sort of surprised to discover that I knew every single word of the song. Every and damn I, word. <laughs> and I say surprised for a few reasons. First, because just in terms of timeline, it actually it's I mean, it's been a while since I've heard it. It's a relatively older song. What is it? 95? 1995. 1995. Okay. So I probably heard it primarily from about 95 to 2005 because I went to college in 08. Mm -hmm. Um, So I heard it during that decade. It's a little bit older. I haven't listened to it probably in a really long time. But I was also surprised because like lyrically, it's really, really packed with so many words. So much. (laughs) So much. And, you know, on one hand, it's like I'll hear a worship song or a praise song come on the radio and immediately know all the words and can like fall right into the chorus with ease. But this song is not a traditional worship song. It's not even a traditional, really contemporary, you know, sort of music song of the time. It's really different. And lyrically, it's so packed. And the majority of it, I remembered it rolled right off the tongue, which I I think probably really speaks to its significance and lasting impact. Absolutely. I uh, I felt exactly the same way coming back to it. Um, My my time in in Christian culture heavily extended into my college years. So I was actively listening to this up through probably about 2010 thereabouts. Mm. Um, But still, I haven't listened to this song in years. This was this was my kind of music. I lived (laughs) in like the Christian rock scene in uh, high school and college. So um, the thing that they're doing here was my thing. And and like you said, once I re-listened to it, it was like I had never like taken a break from it. It was was right back in it. The rest of the album, not so much. Um, I, although I do remember them like, oh, yeah, that melody. That's where that melody that gets stuck in my head every now and then comes from mm-hmm. or something like that. Well, that song was not only, you know, the biggest song of that album, but it was also top of the charts consistently, I think, for a couple of years across all Christian music. So Absolutely. you heard it a hell of a lot. You did all the time, everywhere. And it was one of those things that reached a level of um, mainstream success that a lot of other uh, Christian music didn't, mm-hmm. you know, I think we've, you know, kind of talked about the place that this uh, occupied in our minds uh, and in our memories. Um, but if you had to venture a guess, just sort of. Uh, going off of your own experience what role in the christian culture of its day do you see this song this album playing so when i think about this song the emotion that 
you know, kind of immediately surfaces for me is that, to be honest, it sounds kind of silly, but the song actually kind of scared me. It, it actually kind of freaked me out. <laughs> I've been holding that one in <laughs> for, for weeks. Okay. So it kind of freaked me out. So, you know, I, I was a pretty anxious kid. I feel like that's going to be a caveat on so many things I say in these episodes. Um, I was a pretty anxious kid. And, but that, so it, it made me the song and the kind of um, the, the way it was represented in the church, the events that it was played at, the sermons it corresponded with, the teachings it corresponded with, you know, freaked me out. Um, and by that, I mean, because I, I think it was because it was so explicitly tied to the church's, what I would argue, the church's sort of odd obsession at the time with a kind of martyr complex. So the song so often coincided with conversations about what would you sacrifice for Christ? How far would you go? Um, You know, I mean, the song literally references someone's head getting chopped off. Right. Right. Um, So it was sometimes it was sometimes as kind of um, modest as, you know, oh, would you stand up to someone at school? You know, a, a kid who you thought was cool. Would you stand up to that person at school? But it could go all the way to conversations about if someone stormed into your house and held a gun to your head, would you say, you know, you still love Christ. Right. And this was so popular during that time. Um, That rhetoric was so popular. And I see Jesus freak as a phenomenon, like that was really rooted in that phenomenon either. And maybe, you know, you can talk a little bit more about this, whether or not it just coincided, whether it sparked, whether it reinforced it, I'm not Mm -hmm. sure. But all I know is that I already had, I was really fundamentally terrified <laughs> as a kid of this idea, always secretly doubting, like, would I actually, if it was asked of me, would I be a martyr? You know, yeah, an absurd question, absurd thing for a 13 year old, but nonetheless on my mind constantly. And Jesus freak just totally, you know, brought those questions to the surface. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think that it, it, it occupies a similar space in my memory. Um, Surprise, surprise. I, too, was an anxious kid. Um, And I think, you know, one thing um, that's like of note is 1995 is the same year that the first Left Behind book came out. So, you know, without without getting into too many of all these things we're talking about, you know, the the anxieties about the world ending, about the apocalypse, uh, you know, the second coming all of these anxieties were sort of tied together with that martyrdom. Mm-hmm. And I think youth culture around the time, I really latched onto that. We'll get to sort of some of the reasons why I think that was. Um, but also for me, this was less of a trigger than it was something that like reinforced the thing. Okay. If that makes sense. Right. So less, less, um, being a fear and more normalizing Mm. normalizing martyr culture yeah normalizing martyr culture normalizing this idea that i was going to be always considered freakish oh that's fascinating that i was always going to be considered abnormal Mm. and that if i wasn't considered if i was considered normal but that was actually a problem yeah yeah i wonder if we actually felt that persecution that sense of persecution before the culture told us you are experiencing it 
You know, like, yes, I don't know if I can go back and actually access that genuinely, but I do wonder about that sometimes. Like, was I actually ever experiencing that at all? Or was I just constantly kind of told you're going to experience it, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then I, you know, kind of reacted accordingly. Right. You, you, you are told that you're going to experience a kind of thing. And then you like post hoc, you know, after the fact you apply, oh, that's what that that's the label that I can file this under, you know, when my friends got annoyed that I didn't curse at the time, <laughs> they could see me now. Like I, that was persecution, right? I filed that away under I'm a freak. That's what it is, mm. you know, and that's a good thing. You know, when my friends got annoyed that I turned every opportunity into a witnessing moment, it was good. They should not like you. They should consider you a freak. Right. And this right. sort of reinforced that. So um, before we get too wrapped up in more of that, let's let's set the stage for uh, the historical context of this song. So sure. uh, Jesus Freak was the title song on uh, the Jesus Freak album, uh, which was released in 1995, like we said, by the band DC Talk. Um, DC Talk is one of the most iconic bands of Christian music, particularly in the nineties, they actually have only had a shelf life of like 12 years. Wow. And in that 12 years, they actually only released five albums. Wow. Okay. And there's been like pressure for them to reunite, you know, get back together. I feel like at the 20th anniversary, mm-hmm. there was a lot of pressure to, you know, re- go back in, in on tour and, and all of that. And it never happened, did it? Never happened. Okay. It never happened. Um, so that's an interesting um, element to all of this is these three guys, Toby McKeon, who's Toby Mack, uh, Michael Tate, and Kevin Max. Okay. Um, these three guys met in college very inorganically Hmm. so um matt toby mack and michael tate met um during a school event where toby heard michael sing and after the event came up and said hey you're really talented want to do something together (laughs) and michael tate was like i can't i'm going on tour to a bunch of churches over the summer and like toby matt he basically hired toby Mac to do sound something he said he was terrible at and after that summer of working together on the road they were like okay now let's do something together and they heard about this they were both seniors they heard about a freshman who could also sing and they just approached kevin max and said hey we need a third person do you want to be it (laughs) um And he agreed. And this is sort of how DC Talk is born. And they released their title album, their self-titled album, uh, independently in or pseudo independently in about 87, 88. Okay, Teddy, would you like to take a guess at which college these three gentlemen went to? Liberty University. You are correct. Yep. That was a hard one. It was very (laughs) difficult. Yeah, they all went to Liberty. And so they sort of had this 
again, like I said, it's a very inorganic thing. They're not like three buddies who got together and said, let's start a band. They just like they wrote Jesus Freak while at Liberty University. They did not write Jesus Freak while at Liberty University. Okay. They all graduated by the time their second album came out, okay. which was New Thang. N-U-E-H-A-N-G. <laughs> okay. New Thang. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. So New Thang is really interesting for DC talk and for Christian music, because for the most part, Christian music is, I guess, for, for lack of trying, Christian music doesn't have much of a hip hop or popular presence at this point. The no, closest thing we yeah. get to like a pop presence is some gospel music mm-hmm. that's doing more modern things. Okay. Um, and <laughs> this is going to sound very strange, but some of the things that Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant are doing. What? Uh, I Yeah. Um, so we can talk more in depth about Amy Grant. So we're just going to take a quick aside to discuss Amy Grant <laughs> okay. because um, it's hard in- not to mention, you know, Amy Grant oh in a gosh. conversation about 90s Christian music. Right. To be fair, you know, well, the interesting thing is that she reaches sort of her height, the height of her controversy, the height of her like fame in the late 80s. Mm, OK. Um. And it's so weird for me to say that Amy Grant was controversial. What world do people live in that Amy Grant is controversial? I kind of love that, actually. Like, oh, it's amazing. She was the subversive one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that goes to show you the climate of Christian culture that DC Talk is walking into. Mm. So how, would you des- how would you describe that climate that, yeah. that they're walking into? That's a great, great question. So um, let's let me do it this way. Jesus freak is a phrase that came out of the 1960s. OK, um, the phrase was originally a pejorative or a derogatory term for Christians. OK, um, in in a climate of, you know, peace and love and hippies and all that stuff. Christians were freaks, even in all of that. It was quite strange. So this was primarily coming from the, quote, secular world yes. directed toward Christians in a, in a like derogatory. Yes. Way. OK. And a lot of the the interesting dynamics of the Jesus freak movement or the Jesus movement of the time was that folks who were using drug culture and hippie culture to sort of find meaning and find substance were um, deterred from Christianity at first, but then Christianity realized that these are a bunch of people who are desperate for some kind of meaning. And it's really interesting Mm -hmm. to hear how that word desperate is used actively by Christians at the time. Yes. Right. Like I was listening to uh, folks like Greg Laurie, who's a really interesting, like uh, uh, um, expert in in Jesus movement music. And he talks about how he and other like early Jesus bands were desperate for meaning, Mm. desperate to understand God. And then they found Jesus and then they their language. You can see it on their faces. You can hear it in their language switches when they start talking about Jesus. It's oh, then I was saved. 
then I found this thing that gave me that. Mm. Uh, it was called sort of uh, uh, colloquially the, the Crystal Cathedral in uh, Southern California. It was um, Calvary Church. Um, they were the first to accept like people wearing jeans and no shoes and long hair. Like on, on that level, like just the clothing and the hair, like not being cleanly shaven or right. having long hair as a man or short hair as a woman, you know, they were the first to accept folks like that. And so it became this sort of boon for hippies turning Christian. I see. Um, and so you have this idea of freakishness coming from two sides. Now, there's the establishment of the church. That's saying these hippies, these weird people who are becoming Christians are freakish versions of Christians. And then you have everyone who's sort of embracing mainstream hippie culture, mainstream you know, hegemonic culture. They are calling these people freaks as well for other reasons. So there's freaks coming kind of from both sides. Okay. This language is not a coincidence. Absolutely not. Um, and in fact, DC Talk received a lot of props from the early movers and shakers of the Jesus music. That's what that music in the 60s and 70s was called, mm. uh, who were like, wow, this thing was used as a weapon against us and you're redeeming it, you're reclaiming it. Mm. So um, the, the mainstays of what became Christian contemporary music, contemporary Christian music, lauded what DC Talk was doing. Okay. That's the start. Then you, that's the 70s. Then you get to the 80s with Amy Grant and Michael W. Smith. Uh, Amy Grant was initially uh, someone described her as the perfect picture of what Christians expected a woman to be. Yeah, for sure. She was talented. She was attractive, but she was soft spoken. She didn't dress like she was attractive. Mm -hmm. You know, she just came up, was quietly powerful and moved away. Right, right. Thin, white. I mean, it's demure. Yeah. It's just perfect. She was perfect. She was. She was yeah. absolutely perfect. And so a lot of her early music is just it's fitting exactly what that mold is. Where her controversy comes in is it's the 80s, man. Like she got up and she dressed with like, you know, this leotard, like 80s leotard thing with a suit jacket over it and danced on stage. Hot. And then, I like it. Yeah. I mean, she looked like a a true 80s icon. Can we just share that yesterday when you were watching the documentary about Christian music history, I just watched the trailer and immediately text you, texted you. Why is Amy Grant hot? <laughs> she's, she's beautiful. And she has that. I don't know. She like it's incredible. Like she is. And. Uh, and Michael W. Smith, too, like he he joins Amy Grant, you know, his music isn't as controversial. Of course, he's a white man. So, you know, his embracing of popular music isn't as controversial, mm -hmm. whereas, you know, Amy Grant has a hit that kind of crosses over into the mainstream world. Right. Right. And she gets sort of applause and cheers from the from the christian music scene but the, again the establishment church looks at her as not promoting the gospel above herself 
Right. Because she sang, didn't she sing like also a couple love songs and even like dare to sing like a Christmas song, like Jingle Bells or something that didn't have like Christ in it. Like she, yeah, there was some, there was some going into the quote secular music Mm -hmm. industry. Yeah. Her big song in the eighties that, that started this uh, lashback was baby, baby. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which again, like my brain, this is, this is me being a little younger. My brain immediately goes to Justin Bieber and my sister playing that song nonstop. But originally it was Amy. Sacrilegious. Yeah. It's Amy's. But yeah, so that's the start of this controversy. So that's, that's what the eighties looks like. So by the time we get to DC talk in the late eighties, early Mm nineties, um, they are a, uh, they're two white guys and a black guy. So they're so this mixed uh, band, young, young, very young. Um, they're all in their early twenties when they start to hit real success. Mm-hmm. Um, and they sort of tap into this nascent market of Christian hip hop. Um, I remember uh, when I was young, my dad's favorite, and it's still his favorite musician. But when I was young, my dad's favorite musician was Stephen Curtis Chapman. Oh, OK. And another huge name from, ni- you know, it 90s oh, really? Christian music. But on one of his big albums, DC Talk did a, uh, a song with him. Really? Yes. So if you ever really want to, like, experience something strange, go listen to Stephen Curtis Chapman's song, Got to Be True. Okay. The letter B. OK. Number two. OK. Got to be true. Okay. And it's T R U. I'll link that in the show notes. Or just just Kevin or just Michael Tate. It was the whole all of DC Talk. Oh, interesting. All of DC Talk. And they do like this. They they sample from the new thing album on that song. (laughs) Um and then they rap alongside Stephen Curtis Chapman. I will never ever forget the lyrics. He starts the song rapping. Stephen Curtis Chapman. Oh, my God. White Tennessee boy. (laughs) Stephen Curtis Chapman starts the song with. Well, normally at this point, you'd hear me singing and I'd be doing that acoustic guitar thing. So by now, you're probably wondering what's going on, because this is starting to sound like one of those rap songs. And he goes into this like weird apologetic for rap music and has DC talk join him and they rap the other verses. Okay. He makes a, there's like this little spoken word piece at the end of the song where he says to the guys, this is when he famously cut his mullet, Stephen Curtis Chapman. He got short hair. He cut off his mullet at this point. So he actually says to them, Hey, Toby, I want to ask you a question. Like I just, you know, cut my hair short and everything. And I'm trying to do new things. And, you know, for God. And, you know, I wonder, do you think I've got a future in hip hop? And Toby Mac says, yeah, I, I think that rap music is most definitely you. And then they all go, not. And I'm like, oh, wow. Famous 90s, not joke. OK, that was like memory unlock when you just said that. So yep. on some level, I'm, I'm re- I, I remember that. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. really interesting. That was a long winded explanation for this. I know it's a little bit of a detour, but. This goes to show you how Christian music was trying to legitimize this at every step of the way. Right. There is this consistent fight 
from sort of the inception of Jesus music as a genre, Christian music as a genre in the 60s. So by legitimize, you mean make Christian rap, hip hop a thing? Yeah, make it acceptable. Make it something that Christian radio stations would play, that that pastors would approve of. And, And part of that fight is because the reason a lot of Christian music got off the ground and it was established and accepted is because of Billy Graham, of all people. He uh, asked folks like Larry Norman and um, I believe Andre Crouch to go to his rallies Mm. and play. And because Billy Graham was who he was, it was like, okay, well, we can't fight against Billy Graham's acceptance. So now we have to accept this thing as well. Yeah. Um, So it, it became this sort of blanket permission slip it feels like christian music of the time was really you know it was trying in some ways it had two projects that are kind of contradictory the one project being making it palpable and like acceptable to older christians christians who you know may not be into this christians who may think it's too much right but then also still trying to be edgy enough or to to market it to the secular world, to make it desirable enough to the secular world that they're going to be kind of leaning in and being like, "Ooh, what's this? I'm interested in this while still being appropriate enough to be played in church and to be heard by your 70 year old elders. Right. So yes. that's a balancing act. Yeah. So let me ask you about your your high school uh, listening habits. Did you find that the balancing act was successful enough for you? Was that something that you saw as valuable or was it more or less just valuable enough as Christian music? Let me let me give you my answer to that so you can understand what I'm asking here. I didn't have a ton of non-Christian friends from being homeschooled. um, But by the time uh, I started making friends with neighborhood kids who weren't Christians, and my friends started to go to public school and making friends that weren't Christians. The idea of a band that would appeal to my non-Christian friends while giving them the, the Jesus message was really important to me. Mm. What was kind of more important on a personal level, it's like on a social level, that crossover was important. On a personal level, I just wanted to enjoy my genre of music. Yeah. And I wasn't always able to do that. I remember I wanted to go see Reliant K in concert, but I wasn't allowed to because they were playing with Simple Plan and Good Charlotte. (laughs) And those were unacceptable bands. Right. Right. Of course. Of course. Yeah. So to that end, how do you feel that Christian music filled that role? I think that I have a very similar story, probably just with different genres. So I was like a millennial girl, you know, and everybody was listening to the boy bands, Christina Aguilera, Britney Spears, Spice Girls. And I was so drawn to these things. You know, they were all pretty, colorful, fun. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I wanted to be able to listen to them. And although I don't even think my parents in particular, like really enforced a, you know, no Britney Spears type of thing. There was so much pressure in the church to resist the world's, you know, sort of music, world's films, whatever. So when Christian music kind of offered me 
an alternative with um, I'm thinking of names, you know, like Zoe Girl or Rachel Lampa or Stacey Rico or, you know, mm. um, these kind. they were doing the same thing, you know, that a lot of these worldly bands were. But they were talking about Jesus. Um, it really was a sort of permission slip to indulge in the things that were appealing to me um, while ridding myself of the guilt. Now, I will say there was some rhetoric amongst like older folks in my church about how that in and of itself was a problem, that the church shouldn't be trying to duplicate what the world is offering, you know, that like be separate from them, right? The not of this world means actually complete rejection. There's no need to remake what the world is offering. So there was, I sensed some pushback there from some of my mentors in the church, not so much with the poppy people, but it actually did surface with Jesus freak. The like, there's no need to use this language. We don't need to be engaging, you know, with that sort of like rhetoric and grunge sound and edgy stuff. We don't need to be doing what the world's doing because our stuff can stand on its own because Christ is good enough, you know? So there was actually, I don't know if this is true in your church, but there was to the same extent that there was like celebration of the song. Um, there was a little bit of pushback occasionally um, about the phrase freak, about the references to the tattoos <laughs> mm-hmm. in the song, which maybe we can get into that. Um, I'm pretty sure also their concert series was like the the freak show. I think they called it the freak show. And I remember, sure, yeah. yeah. And I remember some people in my church, like just taking issue with that language. So again, there was that balancing act of, you know, it was always a risk, I think, for Christian music to do what it was trying to do. On one hand, it, it, it had potential to bring in the people who wanted to make peace with the things the world was offering and to enjoy those things within a, a sort of language and, and style that felt still acceptable to them. But also it still kind of challenged this idea that the church need not engage with the world at all Mm, uh, really well put i I like the language of the the permission slip and and also you know that that in the world but not of it you know that's the phrase i was looking for thank you yeah yeah that that's sort of the the um thought terminating cliche for this sector right Mm. um for this issue it was how much of what the world has or does is being in it versus of it hey when does appro- when does reappropriating or reclaiming actually just become conformity which is what christ told us not to do right absolutely and that's particularly relevant to jesus free like the album and the song because right. it it toes this line it, it marks this theme of non-conformity as uh, uh, an imperative to the jesus follower Right. So we're going to get into reading closely the song. I want to just make one last comment about sort of the industry of Christian music. And that is that after DC talk, I mean, after they break up, because what ends up happening to them is they are just three individuals. Uh, Kevin Max said we were three individuals performing on stage together, not a band, mm. not a group. Toby and Michael fought constantly. And <laughs> yeah. um, and so they decided they were going to take a hiatus because they needed to do their own things. That hiatus has lasted, what, 25 years at this point almost. Right. Are all three of them still producing music? Do you know? They are all producing music still. Okay. Individually. In, uh, sort of. Michael Tate is with Newsboys. 
That's so weird. Michael Tate is is like like he it's his like most like he's very responsible for Newsboys. Wow, I missed that. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Is Peter uh, Fuller still in Newsboys? Do you know the bald guy? I don't know off the top of my head, actually. Wow, it's Michael Tate now. Okay, you learn something yeah. every day. Okay. Yeah, uh, it's Michael Tate now. Um, Toby Mac has done a lot of producing on his own. Um, he sort of refashioned himself as like, I don't know, I always thought of him as like the Christian Eminem because he's a white dude doing hip hop. Yeah. And he's yeah. really influential in the genre. It's weird. Um, but he does a lot of that kind of thing. And then Kevin Max did. He actually was part of Audio Adrenaline for a while. I knew that. Yeah. 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 I didn't know that. I didn't. Weirdly, I didn't listen to Audio Adrenaline that much. OK, so they went on to do individual work, but then also two of the three joined different bands. Yeah. Well, Kevin Max also did a lot of he wrote published books of poetry and did some solo music. And so like he went sort of like the, yeah, he went the uh I was gonna get one of his poems to read, but I couldn't find one fast enough. Probably for the best. <laughs> um anyway, so he went sort of that direction. Um he also interestingly said that he wanted his music to be a place for Christians and for Buddhists to come and think about God. Which is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But oh yeah, so after the DC talk break up christian music in the early aughts sort of became an establishment in and of itself and bands sort of stopped trying to do the crossover thing as strongly and just became oh i'm a christian man that's just what it is there's enough of an institution there's enough of an industry okay okay so that we can market and be christian music like there was that before for sure but like the industry of Christian music exponentially took off after DC Talk. OK, so you see this time as a, a, an era where individual artists started to become part of something bigger. That is the like CC, the Christian music industry. Right. right. So is this a, I'm assuming this is around the same time. Maybe we start getting more Christian radio stations, Christian music magazines, right, where we can actually start to talk about this thing more holistically rather than just Amy Grant, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, okay. absolutely. That makes One sense. thing I will say is that uh, Christ, uh, CCM magazine, the Contemporary Christian Music I, Magazine, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Uh, began in like the 70s. Oh, weirdly. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't know that. Okay. Um, uh, it was under a different name, I think. But Was at any rate, three pages long. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> that all said, here's what I would like you to do, Teddy. Okay. Uh, I've sent you. you Is, that's what you want me to do. Yes, I want you yeah, to yeah. rap. Yeah. Uh, white girl from Pennsylvania. That won't be happening. Rap thyself. Yeah. <laughs> um, would you please read me the first? lines the first stanza of jesus freak which happens to be uh part of the chorus they're afraid okay so the first four lines of jesus freak also the chorus are what will people think when they hear that i'm a jesus freak what will people do when they find that it's true off the bat i just want to say catchy so damn catchy yeah so catchy yeah like I, i will give this like i will give whole props to this Toby Mac knows how to write catchy lyrics. Absolutely. It's a bop. It is. Yeah. 
I don't think they would appreciate it being called a bop. So this is this is the setup, though. This is the setup is what will people think if they hear I'm a Jesus freak? So immediately foregrounded is a discussion of identity in relation to community or culture. Right. So in that spirit, before we move into the first verse, could you describe for me what you think like the tone and genre of this is? You don't have to use any like specific language. I'll, I'll supply what I think after. What will people think when they hear that I'm a Jesus freak? What will people do when they find that it's true? Well, my anxious kids already kicking in like we're setting up a threat here. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, so what will people do when they find that it's true? Um, so, I mean, to me, we're and I don't know if this is what you're looking for, but I feel like even in these four opening lines, we're already setting the we're, we're setting up the stage for the martyr culture, you know, oh, absolutely. Yeah what's going to happen when they hear that I'm a Christian sort of the implicit um uh claim there is that something will happen something will happen and it's immediately engaging not with Christ or one's really relationship with Christ but it's immediately about one's relationship to the secular world right and I think that's a, a rather unique thing that that starts a trend and that that we identified as sort of that martyr complex. Mm-hmm. Um, this scary they, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, yeah. Who are they? <laughs> and and the music at this point. Oh, yeah. Is um, like this hollow, percussive acoustic guitar. Like it's fuzzy and echoey and it feels like empty. And then it shocks into this grunge mm-hmm. style i was rereading some op-eds from like the early more early 2000s that have been published in archives online and a lot of people describe like the very few first you know 30 seconds or so of jesus freak they use the word eerie which mm. i thought was interesting that is a good word it yeah. does it yeah. has that foreboding yeah. yeah yeah um okay Okay, so, so those are our first four lines. Those are our first four lines. Out of the gate, we're already on a specific thing. So let's go to the next uh, stanza. Um, these are sort of our first proper lines because those lines are are um, very echoey and backgrounded with the music, those first four that we've already read. We start out with separated, I cut myself clean from a past that comes back in my darkest of dreams been apprehended by a spiritual force and a grace that replaced all the me I've divorced. Yes, exactly. (laughs) It's so, before we started the podcast, I was saying it's going to be really hard to read these lyrics without like picking up the sort of tone and vibe because it's so, again, patchy. Yeah. Yeah, like the way Michael Tate sings separated at the beginning there, I just Jeff's kiss. Yeah, I just I can't. I just want to sit in that. I want to sit in those syllables and feel oh uncomfortable. <laughs> but but oh. but notice again these first lines separated. Like the first word, the proper of this song is separated. Mm-hmm. The second sentiment in that line, if we chunk it into those two bits, is being cut clean from something. Yeah, I noticed this also fits sort of with um, the standard conversion narrative or testimony 
right that that uh we've come to expect in christian cultures so i'll do a, a language check on myself uh, the idea of a testimony is this uh narrative that you construct of your conversion experience the the, the formula is basically I was this person who did X, Y, and Z. Usually bad. <laughs> bad Usually <things>. bad. <laughs> um, at the very least on a Christian perspective. Sure, sure. Like uh, according to Christian morality, this is wrong. Right. Uh, then it's, I encountered the Jesus message through these means. And now I am a person who no longer does those things in the past. And maybe there's an addition of something that is, seen as acceptable or good in Christian eyes added on to that. So it's this shifting of purpose, this shifting away from one activity, um, and then a specific like point of conversion or turning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this was starting to get into, um, I feel like this era was starting to rely on like darker, more intense language to articulate that phenomenon. Like this is where we start to see more of the um, rhetoric of like dying to oneself Mm -hmm. you know, cutting out one's old self, you know, what, what used to be just sort of the sweet sort of like rebirth language. I feel like we're starting to get, you know, a little bit more intense language here. And certainly we see, I mean, this sentence, th this stanza is actually pretty dark. You know, I cut yeah. myself clean, darkest of dreams, force and divorce. My God, like, right. He's, you know, so, notice for a second what the language is for the moment of conversion apprehended. Right. Like that's carceral language. Yeah. Right. Interesting. And it's also something that I always felt, you know, as a kid who had his conversion experience when he was like seven. You accepted Christ into your heart at your kitchen table. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. No, actually, <laughs> I, I went to a private school for kindergarten and in chapel one day, the I have still vivid memories of this. Like, see, I already have this all practiced. I was seven. I was in uh, in chapel in in uh, school and the, the principal delivered a sermon that said uh, there are no God has no grandchildren, she said. So we can't ride our parents' faith into heaven. We have to have our own or else we'll burn in hell kind of thing. Hmm. Um, I don't think it was quite as explicit um, as like burn in hell language, but it was that sentiment. Yeah. I always kind of was like, oh, well, at least you got to have your drug-induced conversion and got to experience all right. these things. Right. Yeah. Like, no, yeah. I got gypped. I could have, you know, I could have went to college and slept around and had drugs and Art done all these things drugs. and came back around. Yeah, you know, that's interesting. I mean, it's a little bit, I, I little, you know, side, a little bit of a detour here, but I, I totally remember being a kid and feeling like the church simultaneously, you know, loved those like intense, those radical testimonies, testimony stories of, you know, from darkness into light. I was a total heathen and now mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, but also was simultaneously basically trying to, you know, make sure that children never had to have that testimony. Right. right. I mean, <laughs> you know, so it's I, and I kind of remember that tension of feeling like I don't really have much of a story. I didn't do a yeah. bunch of bad things, you know. Yeah. And then I think it was actually Billy Graham who had a sermon about that. And he was like, your testimony is that you don't have a testimony. Like super powerful, right? It was like, yeah, you know, yeah. your testimony is that you've always been a believer. And that's amazing in and of itself. Don't worry about the drugs, Nick, you know? 
Um, uh, now, so, now I have to now I have to tell dad that I know where he got that when I told him those things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah I found him back, out. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember having a conversation with my dad where I was like, it's, I not, that I, it's not that I want to do drugs or have sex. I promise. I just, you know, I don't know. I want to know what the world. Come on, baby Nick. Come on. But. <laughs> Or like people would like, I remember my friends would like frame it as like, a, you would be a better witness if you had a testimony. So Nick, it actually, you would have been a better witness had you done the drugs, you know? Um. Oh God, I want to get high for Jesus. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, um, so anyway, yeah, it's all Teddy, there in these four lines. In the, yeah. In the four lines. So I think for me, this next stanza is the most memorable section of the song. It has to be because you mention it a lot. You mention it all the time. This oh my gosh. These lines. Yeah. When I think of this song, these lines are the lines I think about. So go ahead. I'm not going to say maybe it. you should do the honors. It's so important to you. OK, do it. OK, this yeah. is where we switch from Michael Tate singing to Toby Mac rapping. Right. So this is rapping, by the way, this not is, singing. This yeah. is rapping. Right. So we have sort of like grunge style electric guitar and drums with uh, a white dude rapping over it. I saw a man with a tat on his big fat belly. It wiggled around like marmalade jelly. Took me a while to catch what it said because I had to match the rhythm of his belly with my head. Jesus saves is what it raved in a typical tattoo Greek. He stood on a box in the middle of a city and he claimed he had a dream. I don't know where to start. Okay, so why? I mean, maybe a good place to start is like now I'm taking your job. But why is why is this so? Why does this stick out to you so much? Is it purely the the really like the imagery is just so? I mean, what is it? Yeah, I think it's the imagery. Yeah, I really do. Like, so so I was thinking about this in in preparation. Right, this stanza feels so absurd to me and almost stupidly absurd. Yeah. Um, because of the lyrics. But then like I went back and I looked at like Nirvana's lyrics. Oh. And I because I really like Cobain as a lyricist. Yeah. But his stuff is kind of just as like one of the most like I would I would put this song, Jesus Freak, in the grunge adjacent genre. Agreed. It feels that way. They yeah. move from hip hop to kind of like a a grunge core style thing. Sure. Um so I I know Nirvana was the the pan over. But in like the most iconic grunge song of all time, Smells Like Teen Spirit, Cobain writes the lyrics, an albino, a mulatto, a mosquito, my libido. My God. So on some level, this feels like because I'm think, sitting there thinking like, oh, this is what you get when you can't just say what you want to say. Right. You know, like on, on some level, I think that like, you know, and, and, and Newsboys does this all the time, too. They write about these absurd things with really odd imagery. Which isn't always bad. It just doesn't feel right. It feels something yeah. wrong about it. But by the same token, there is a level of absurdity in grunge core music, grunge and grunge core music. So that really sticks it out. But it also doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It feels like so much filler. After that really violent, intense first stanza, to then pivot to this image of Toby Mac wagging his head, staring at a fat man's bare stomach is so silly. So he's preaching this. The tattoo dude is preaching. Right. right. So this just really all goes back to the Jesus lovers don't necessarily look like what you think or want them to look like. Mm -hmm. 
and it, it the love or commitment to one's faith could make you the man standing out on the box because it's so radicalizing. Is that the takeaway here? I, I think that's the takeaway. The language and he claimed he had a dream is a little odd to me. Yes. Like Thank you. It, ev- it evokes like Martin Luther King Jr. vibes. Yeah. <laughs> and also just feel like the phrase dream just it doesn't feel scriptural. It doesn't feel like even like very it doesn't feel like Christian rhetoric of the time. I, I'm not yeah. sure we even know what that dream is. It feels much more. I mean, Jesus saves is what he's preaching, right? It feels more like a conviction or a truth or, you know, something. Mm-hmm. the word dream always struck me as odd. And I don't know right. if it's just a rhyming dilemma. Uh, or I think that it's like. a rhyming dilemma. Okay. I, yeah, I think that he put himself into a, a corner, painted okay. himself into a corner and just stuck really with boxed it. himself in. <laughs> We need a lot of rim shot in this podcast. Right. No, he did. He boxed himself into a corner because the, I, I've, I've heard songs that like evoke a dream or like um, like a psychological surreal state. And then what follows is in that state. Right. Like it's supposed to evoke the dream. And then the next lines are describing the dream. Right. And there's nothing like that. happens Because yeah. we skip back to the what will people think lines. Right. Yeah, so I don't understand what this dream is supposed to be. And you're right. My mind immediately went to MLK. Yeah. We're going to, I want to put a pin in that and come back to it when we talk about the music video. Okay. But I think that's really weird. Yeah. So uh, we skipped down to the chorus, which are the same first four lines, but added on, I don't really care if they label me a Jesus freak. There ain't no disguising the truth, which, you know, English teacher and me, double negative, disguise the truth. (laughs) Ain't no disguising the truth. No, I ain't into hiding the truth, which has like he doth protest a little too much there. Also, there are double negatives in all three of those lines. Yeah. No, I ain't. Ain't no, ain't no. So what do do we think when we come back to this chorus now? I don't know. The same repeated. What will people think when they hear that I'm a Jesus freak? What will people do when they find that it's true? I don't really care. If they label me, that's where you get your lady doth protesteth, right? Like, right. Yeah. How much? I don't really care, (laughs) but you care a little. You don't really care, but you care a little. Right. You care a little. (laughs) You care a little. Yeah. Um, But no, I mean, and again, this is sort of that consequential, like there's that eerie foreboding in the first, the first time we hear it. Um, Then there's that separation. And now we get to, well, because I'm separated, I don't care. There's. Also, like that no disguising language connected with like the shirtless man image that we both have in our head is that idea of sincerity or bareness, right? Like, I'm going to be vulnerable and show this thing because I can't disguise what is true. And then truth is also defined as a state of being. Yeah, I I mean... Besides the repeated like Jesus freak phrase, it also feels like here's where we're starting to set up the pattern of the most common phrase in the song being like the word hide and hiding one's faith. Um, Mm -hmm. And it just seems like it's really, really responding to some sort of perceived. We could talk about whether or not it's real perceived cultural pressure that we're supposed to hide our faith, you know, Um, that. Christians have found themselves in some sort of particular moment where it was becoming supposedly less accepted to be a follower of Christ 
And now we need to create songs and art that are urging people, no, don't give in. You don't have to hide. You know, that's what folks for me. It also, um, I, I think, I think taking a note from what, what you're talking about, think about how far back in the past they reached for that language. Right. Like there are certainly, and obviously people alive who experienced that phrase as derisive however you reach back like 30 years almost they're writing jesus freaking 95 they reached back to the mid to late 60s for their phrase yeah that's a good point they're not actually pulling a phrase from their contemporary culture that is currently being used against them they are almost resurrecting that maybe wasn't even all that popular to begin with. I certainly didn't know the phrase Jesus freak until they brought it to my attention, which the church is great at this, by the way, like, (laughs) you know, this would be a recurring theme for those of you who are listening. We're talking about this all the time. Also, we're going to be the first ones to tell you about it. You know, (laughs) so, yeah. Yeah, no. And, and I think that's part of this, um, you know, the, the issue that I take, with this approach, you know, it's both anachronistic, you know, it's out of time, you know, it feels disjointed, but mm-hmm. by the same token, it, it it's establishing something new. Uh, yeah. And we're going to see that later when we talk about the aftermath as well. So one, one more pin to hang on to. And future songs, I think, would start to actually latch on to more contemporary examples using this same rhetoric. Like we start to see songs like talking about actually Columbine. She's, you know, saying yes, you Mm -hmm. know, in shooting, you know, things that are starting to more explicitly draw on the actual era, you know. Um, But this does feel like it's not really a present moment thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I would I would even say that, like, this song is so important because it's the model from which a lot of Christian music uh, draws. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it establishes this idea of uh, the identity is the focus of the song. Mm-hmm. Your identification as Christian is the focal point of the song. Right. And not your relationship with Christ, as many people might think or say, it's not even a worshipful song. It's not even really a social song. It's very individualistic. I, I would I would call it a song like hyper individualistic. Yeah, this isn't this isn't worship. This is this For is sure. a celebration and claiming of a particular Christian subject sense mm-hmm. of like, subjecthood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we were talking kind of separately before the the podcast about this idea of like claiming an identity and latching onto that thing that you claim a little too strongly. Right. And I, I think this is kind of a case of that, right? Like this is, it has to be everything or it's nothing. Mm-hmm. Let's do one more stanza and then we'll just sort of talk about it broadly. Um, as yeah, I, I know on. we're being such English majors, like it's going to take three hours to get through the song. But yeah. <laughs> um, so, OK, so you want me to read something? Yeah, read, read that and let next uh, stanza. Kamikaze, my death is gain. I've been marked by my maker, a peculiar display. The high and lofty, they see me as weak because I won't live and die for the power they see. So we've dropped any pretense. Right. 
like explicitly like like th- this is suicidal language this is violent language oh, this is war language <laughs> crazy it's it's absurd and there actually we get back to um you know the language that i had referenced earlier my death is gain that's where we're starting to see you know this real popular phrasing of um the dying not death in a literal material sense but death as this sort of like the spiritual death that is you know sort of the the ending of one's old life and this like rebirth of you know so the new person the new christian the new subject right so my death is gain. I gain by dying to myself. Mm-hmm. Well, and also this is sort of the entry point for a lot of the the martyrdom fallout as well, because what we see happen after this in the song, and we're going to stop doing like the line by line after this after this stanza. But what we see happen after this moment in the song is it replays the John the Baptist narrative, right? And so we they they paint John the Baptist as this a martyr for christ before christ and that that is the model to which we should aspire so it's both referencing the death of the self to the new self and all of that but also like but be prepared you have to be able to die right also literal death yeah the the king took the head of this jesus freak being john the baptist you know that yeah yeah that was the beheading, <laughs> the ominous beheading I was, you know, referring to earlier. Yeah. Really interesting in that kamikaze stanza, uh, the high and lofty, they see me as weak. And I can't decide if that's like classist language or if it's like part of that, like conservative style talking point of like the elite. Mm. right like that the elite is sort of a a shorthand in in conservative political conversation so like it feels like it falls into that my brain immediately went to the former only because probably because i already had the image of like the shirtless guy on the box you know so there seems to be this odd like um they're setting up kind of the humble man who's the Christ follower, it, not explicitly draw. I actually would have loved a song that more explicitly talked about, you know, like <laughs> relinquishing of one's material possessions and, you know, the actual sure. radical message of Christ. Um, but so I think that's sort of in the back of my mind there. And when I get to that stanza, I'm I'm equating the high and lofty with, I guess, wealth. But mm-hmm. I, I think what you're saying is it's also a potential, you know, a great theory. I am not up on how much that like language of the liberal elite, the sort of secular elite and all of that, like, I don't know how pervasive that was in the nineties. Like it certainly is now. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not a hundred percent sure either. Um, it I know true now though. I mean, it is sure. very true now. So yeah. that might just be like an ahistorical projection, but I'd, I'd want to look into that for me that claim too strongly. I think the classist language is just, is what's there. So most of the song after the description of John the Baptist martyrdom is a repetition of the what will people think refrain and the no disguising, no hiding the truth. The only thing, the only other line that I think is worth bringing up, and, and you can certainly have the last word on this. Say. <laughs> people say I'm strange. Does it make me a stranger that my best friend was born in a manger? That's like the one part of the song that's kind of sweet and sentimental and like, mm-hmm. you know, almost corny, if I might say, you know, like, I, yeah. I, 
it, but that's not the tone of the rest of the song. My best friend was born in a manger. I mean, uh, it's also like tonally, like thinking about the music of it, like yeah. it's very soft. It's that like um, almost eerie sounding arrangement yeah. from the beginning. It gets kind of breathy at the end, yes. right? Yeah, yeah. It's so weird, man. That is such a weird line. And like, I get what they're going for, but that reeks to me of like high school Christian journal poetry. Yeah, yeah. And it's still so much about the identity, right? I mean, we have yeah. this reference to like, okay, his best friend is his savior, but it's still completely couched within the, but what will people think? I don't really care. You know, it's a, it's not really commentary on a strong relationship with Christ. It's right. what that strong relationship with Christ makes you and how the world will then hypothetically perceive you, treat you, whatever. Right. It's a little self-indulgent, honestly. If, if well, I might very, say, yeah. <laughs> okay. I think it's very <laughs> self-indulgent. And I, I think that, you know, for all the, the talent in DC talks, I do think they did some genuinely like novel and talented things. Yeah, no, for, um, sure. for all of that, a lot of their music feels very self-indulgent. Yeah. A lot of music at the time feels very self-indulgent. A lot of, you know, CCM music at the time feels self-indulgent. Mm-hmm. It also makes me think um, you were talking about I- identity and perception. How much do you think the idea of being perceived as freakish was made synonymous with persecution? That is such a good question and something that I've thought about a lot in preparation for this podcast. And I sometimes feel like it's unanswerable because I feel like I would have to have a time machine in some ways. Mm. I don't know. And, and that's what I kept writing in my notes was like, is this real or imaginary? This this judgment, this pressure, this, you know, this perception from the world, or is it, was it actually kind of self-constructed and created by them themselves, by us Mm. ourselves, I'll say us, you know? Yeah. I've been wrestling with this a lot um, throughout the whole project of this podcast with that kind of question of like, okay, what is it that uh, I really have forgotten? What is it that I've applied retroactively? And I, I think it's one of the, the reasons that I love this approach that we're trying to do to, to, to pull out of these artifacts, to excavate from these artifacts, their implication, their meaning, their substance, so that we can see, is this something that we fabricated now and are projecting back? Or is this something that, that we came up with on our own? Or was this told to us? whether Mm -hmm. through explicit or implicit means. And I think the answer is sure. All of it, right? Like a both and. Yeah. No. And I think that's why it's ultimately unanswerable. We can't speak for every person who, who, who experienced culture, this culture, you know, we certainly can't speak for people who didn't experience this culture, but we can look back at the things that we remember, the things that we forgot, the things that meant something to us for better or worse. And we can say, this is what they were putting out. So I had to get some of it, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think that's kind of the important, that's at least the posture that I'm keeping. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, you know, the question of was it real or, you know, of, it's like in some ways it's, of course it was real. 
you know, we're talking about it today, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know? Um, I sometimes listen, I, I joked with you the other day that I was listening to Jesus freak and I texted you and said, why do I have goosebumps? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, there is still something that is very, even if troubling or problematic, or I used the word self-indulgent earlier, still really successful about it. Um, and something still really, really moving because I think it taps in to a desire that a lot of people have when they have any kind of really strong belief system, it taps into this desire and need for and belief that they can sustain it, that when up against pressure, they will continue to hold on to it. Mm -hmm. It's about kind of persistence. It's about, I don't know, there's something still, I mean, I guess that's the root of patriotism too it's it's this whole idea that we have something that is special enough that even if everybody tells you it's wrong you know you're going to fight for it right um yeah. it's tapping in some way it's really complex but in some ways it's also tapping into like a really age old sort of thing humans love mm-hmm. well and that's true for for music right like music is meant to be emotionally evocative mm-hmm. it's meant to uh like all good art you know evoke uh, particular feelings and sentiments and reactions in you so a successful song is one that gets its you know point across that that mm-hmm. subconsciously uh, uh viscerally right and i, I honestly this is a good song <laughs> I like know. i it i hate to say it sometimes about some of these things and that's just me being you know uh, uh, frustrated with you know my own identity and all that but like uh it's a good song it's yeah. successful there's a reason it's one of the most iconic christian music songs of the 90s right and a good song is gonna reach you i i immediately heard in my fundamental friends voices uh that's just because it's god calling out to you <laughs> lord what you felt teddy was the lord reaching out to you and trying to get you back through this song. Right, right. Yeah, that's always the go-to reaction yeah. when I talk about these types of things being memorable or sticking in, you know, sticking out to me or that I'll be in my car and all of a sudden I'll remember all the lyrics and people, you know, their immediate go-to is like the Lord calling you back, you know. No, I'm programmed to remember catchy things and this is really catchy and I listen to it probably for a year of my life constantly. Like if you just smushed all the times I listen to Jesus Freak, like it probably takes up a whole year of my life. <laughs> like, Right. Yeah. The same reason that I can recite. And this is actually both kind of this is sort of liberating and also sad at the same time. But it's actually as simple as the reason that I can remember every word of Jesus freak can be explained in the same reason, the same way why I remember every word of like the state capital song that I did as a kid, you know? Yeah. (laughs) It's meant to be memorable. It's meant to kind of lodge itself into Mm -hmm. your memory. Um, Also, Jesus Freak is memorable, even just on the very basic level that it's like unique and interesting. A lot of Christian music is really freaking boring. Was really, I mean, I can't speak for now, but was really freaking boring. A lot of worship songs are boring. So Mm -hmm. in some ways, Jesus Freak, you know, came into that, came into that culture, was totally disruptive, was like, no, we don't need to just, you know, say the same line over and over and over again and only talk about, you know, only do like kind of traditional worship. We can actually like create songs that have worldly references 
and history and maybe even offensive terms and ruffle feathers and that shit's memorable. Yeah, (laughs) it really is. It is. That's a great summary of of why I think this song is important. So let's do a slight pivot here and talk about the music video. And um, then we'll move to sort of the fallout from this song culturally. Okay, so Teddy is back after just having watched that music video. Uh, I specifically asked her not to re-watch the video after all these so many years uh, so we could have a more organic reaction. So, uh, Teddy, what did you think of that music video? Right. Okay. so my this is pretty fresh because I probably haven't seen this since the early 2000s and probably on one of those VHS wow top music video do you remember those <laughs> yes anyway, um so i mean the first thing that sticks out to me about this is that the music video really decided to um showcase and put, put to the forefront the persecution um theme so you know i'm pretty sure that during the entire just so our audience knows i'm pretty sure that during the entire song the four, the men, DC Talk, are sitting in a prison cell. Is that right? That's what it seems like. Yes. Yeah. It looks okay. like an old school dungeon. Like the setting is brick wall, like not brick wall, stone walls yeah. with like bars on the window. Right. This teeny little window. It's like real old school prison. Yeah. Um, so I think the prison cell they put Aladdin in in the Disney movie Aladdin. Perfect. Yeah. That's yep. perfect description. Um, Okay, so immediately you're like, these dudes are in prison, presumably for their beliefs, I guess, Mm -hmm. or in some sort of futuristic world where Christians are imprisoned. They're sitting in there. And then as the music video progresses, and again, I only saw this once now for the first time in years, but it seems like their body language, they become increasingly more kind of insane as the music video goes on. So in the very beginning, they're like kind of sitting really chill. And even when they're like singing really powerful, like lyrics, they're still actually like sitting and and pretty like pretty calm. But then like they they're all starting to like pace as the music video goes on and like their body language becomes more like sporadic. And it feels like it's suggesting some sort of like, you know, being in prison is becoming more and more kind of insanity provoking. And then all of that is juxtaposed with images. And I couldn't even catch them all, but like relatively violent images of crucifixions, people being burned at the stake, fires, people being like dragged through the streets. Like it's just persecution imagery mm-hmm. over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. I think that you, you, uh, great description of that. Um, I, I think it, I was, most startled at first by how still the music video was for the first probably half of the song yeah very still and uh like you said while they're singing you know it's a 90s music video they're lip syncing like and, and kind of poorly but they're doing it sitting still perfectly still almost unmoving and, and that's really unnerving to me 
And as they become more animate, their moves become less normal. Like mm-hmm. they're not like normal human, like, you know, you go from pacing to like they're screaming at the camera and they're like shoving each other and, you know, mm-hmm. doing weird stuff that doesn't quite fit the music. Just like what before they had, just like the sitting didn't fit the music. Yeah. Kevin Max is like shaking his head really violently and like, you know, kind of like rustling his hair like he's yeah. mad. It's like it feels like imagery of like going mad. What you were talking about, the images in the background. So. Uh, an interesting note about this music video is that the um, director and producer um, was Simon Maxwell, which the name probably doesn't mean anything, but he is the guy who worked with the band Nine Inch Nails mm. on their music video for Hurt. Okay, interesting. Yeah, which is a remarkable touchstone for two reasons, I think. As Teddy knows, being an avid Johnny Cash fan, Hurt is also the song that Johnny Cash covered from Nine Inch Nails, uh, making the song better. It's just a better version of the song. You beat me to it. I was about to say, and better. It's better. It's a hundred. Listen, the, um, oh, crud, I forgot his name, but uh, the lead singer from Nine Inch Nails said, oh yeah, that's not our song anymore. It's Johnny's. As it should be. It is. But that's notably one of the big songs on that album uh when johnny cash was a christian like and it was one of his explicitly christian albums that's where he's got his other song like god's gonna cut you down right right like so there's this really interesting that it's that it's has two links to christian music that song hurt um but in hurt as well maxwell uses a lot of this like projected christian imagery into the background while the song is happening. Um, Some images that are thrown up on the background, specific ones that I looked for. There is footage from a Nazi propaganda film. I thought so. Okay. There is footage of both the Selma March and KKK rallies. There is footage of actually Hitler. Uh, those are like the main notable ones. But like you said, there's also like these footages. Some are acted out. Some are not. Um, I think the Tiananmen Square footage gets thrown up there at one point. Yeah. And, you know, so I would love to hear, you know, because you've spent more time with this now. I would love to hear some of your thoughts on this, because as I was watching it, you know, I was seeing some of the clips from the propaganda. I was seeing these sort of, you know, real these quick blips of kind of social movements or moments of social injustice. Like I'm pretty sure I saw a few clips from like Jim Crow era yep. um, with the like, no, uh, it, the phrase was, you know, like no colored people allowed or something like right. that. It struck me a little strange because I don't listen to Jesus freak the song, the lyrics and gather much about necessarily about like social justice per se, or, Mm. you know, anything beyond the like very traditional, like I'm going to be a Christian and sacrifice things for Christ and all of that. But it seems like the, um, the music video is sort of marrying those two concepts, like being some sort of like advocate or, or fighting for what's right in a broader sense to also being a Jesus freak. Is that mm-hmm. right? Or is this just like a complete like binging of, of upsetting images? <laughs> I don't know. But I've been really sitting with it. What, what I noticed on my first watch that really struck me in a way that I, I was very unsettled by 
was during the first iteration of the chorus, the line, what will people do when they hear that I'm a Jesus freak? Um, oh, no, I'm sorry. It's the section where they do that. There's no denying that it's true. That mm-hmm. chorus. That's when they throw up the image of a burning cross. Right. I saw that. Yeah. The coinciding of those two pieces. Mm-hmm. Oh, really uncomfortable. Yeah. The, the first thing that came to mind was, do you know history? Do right. you know that the Ku Klux Klan, that Hitler both proclaimed to be doing what they did out of Christian faith and fealty to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not saying they're right. You know, I don't, I'm not really interested in a no true Scotsman moment here, but like ostensibly Hitler and the KKK were doing what they did because they were standing up for what they believed in just as much. Then they also had images of like the civil rights movement I with know. their images of, Hey, Jesus is telling us we need to do this. It felt very historically tone deaf. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. And as much as I hate, as much as I don't like the extreme persecution imagery, the martyr complex of this era and stuff, I almost think the music video, it would have been better off if it just stuck with that and didn't try to like merge these, like also stand up for minorities. Right. (laughs) You know, I mean, I love the idea that like a Jesus freak is also someone who does the sit-ins and the marches and the, you know, but it's nowhere else in the song. No. And we've talked about this a little bit. Um, We haven't gotten really into the other songs on the Jesus Freak album. There's a little bit of like the social justice idea. There's um, some gestures towards uh, racial reconciliation, as they would like to use that phrase, but not in the song proper. No, not at all. You wouldn't even really go there if the music video didn't bring it to your attention. You know, there's this weird conflation of of standing up for Christ and then presumably standing up for the, you know, marginalized, I guess. Um, But that's nowhere else in the song. Like I said, I like the concept, but it feels messy in the music video. It feels messy. It feels very messy. And there's some interesting things. Uh, to note sort of about, you know, the correlation between the Jesus freak movement, the Jesus movement in the 60s and 70s and the um, like reinvocation in D.C. talk. Right. So there there was this Christian music festival in Dallas called Explo 72. Okay. It was kind of like Creation Fest or any of these like contemporary ones. It happened all the time. But this year, Johnny Cash actually played this. Um, Larry Norman played this a lot of big names they even got Billy Graham's approval for it and Billy Graham came and did a sermon so this was sort of the calcification in the 70s of like rock is part of can be part of the Christian movement and so I wrote this quote down this is actually from Billy Graham's sermon Mm -hmm. and this is why I think it's relevant but Billy Graham said this true faith must be applied to the social problems of our world Hmm. Today, Christian young people ought to be involved in our problems of poverty, ecology, war, racial tension, and others. So Billy Graham says that, now granted, that's 1972. You know, it's like 23, 24 years removed from this song. But that's how far back we're reaching for the rhetoric. 
of Jesus Freak. So on some level, I think there might have been an effort to echo that sentiment because that was a major message of the Jesus Freaks of the 60s and 70s. Um, but I don't think it was a successful incorporation. Like you said, I really think that the a failing, if I'm being honest. Yeah. I also think something that ran through a lot of DC Talks music, and I think it's particularly on this album as well, was this sort of acknowledgement of, you know, and I'm going to use like really sort of casual language here that would have been used at the time, like black people and white people coming together under one God, right? Like right. that's sort of, and that was primarily because of the very presence of Michael Tate. You know, it was like this, it was white and black dudes coming together and, and you know, kind of under this common, sharing this common message. And we have the song on that album, you know, called there's a song on the album called Colored People, where it's based, you know, it's all about like we're one race, we're the human race, we've got to come together, we have to like, we all have the same maker, we all are worshiping the same God. Um, and that really seems to be something that they put, you know, that was a sort of subtext, I think, to a lot of their songs. Again, it's weirdly executed here. But it is something that I feel like we could track in, in more than just this song, at least an acknowledgement of like difference and what that difference means or doesn't mean for Christians. Absolutely. I, I really think you you described that well. There's sort of that sub theme on the album. There's, I think, two or three songs total that like reference this sort of thing, including that song that's called Colored People, um, which is really wonky and problematic and um the, but the music video I, I watched the music video for that song as well and it is not equally problematic as okay. the jesus freak video but it's also very clunky and just uncomfortable you know yeah. there's a lot of like uh, michael tate and toby mac singing face to face like inches from each other's face and the camera's yeah. really tight in on them and you're just like I mean, kiss him already. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, the um, Jesus Freak music video, though, as much as it does reference race, it, it ultimately references racial strife, protest. I mean, violence. It's not really in this. I mean, on one hand, I mentioned that, but in some ways, the way race is mentioned in their other songs, you know, is, it's considerably more tame and arguably mm -hmm. even kind of cliche, you know? Yeah. It seems like this is actually like the images they're drawing on here are really intense, but that just doesn't seem to be follow through. There absolutely isn't. The closest we get to any sort of like cohesive explanation for the music video is in an interview after the fact, quite long after the fact. Okay. Toby Mac says that the song, while ex explicitly about expressing belief and faith in Jesus, um, could also be seen as, quote, a metaphor for the preservation of standing up for what you believe in, even in the midst of persecution. Oh, so he kind of explicitly names this idea of standing up for your beliefs in the face of persecution. I guess I'm just curious, like it was that was that other interpretation a attempt to bring in people who may not relate to like the standing up for your faith part? Like, was it an attempt to widen its the audience and make it more like applicable to people like 
it, this song could be for anyone. Stand up for what you believe in. Stand up for what's quote right. Like, is it that kind of attempt or is it actually, you know, sort of proposing that Christians need to be involved in what I don't, the phrase is so loaded now, but like social justice efforts. Like, is that, is he actually proposing a model, a different model of Christianity there? Or is it more about like this song could pertain to a lot of things, even if you're not a Jesus freak? Like, it would be hard for us. I asked that partly too, because this is one of those Christian songs that I don't see a very like effortless crossover. Like this feels like a song that is for Christians. Yeah. You're not going to be someone who's an atheist, like bopping along to this song and like garner some other kind of meaning from it. I would think, I mean, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and it's really interesting. So I'm, I'm looking at some other of my notes from this interview. Toby Max says the first thing we told him, meaning Simon Maxwell, who also I, I'm noticing from this article um, did work with Nirvana. So there's that tie in is the first thing that we told Maxwell was that this wasn't just another song to us. The song represents our beliefs. It's about faith. And we're not about to back down from that. And we told him we did not want to send out a message that was confusing. <laughs> we are not confused about our faith. And it was important that the video represent our strength and conviction. He was extremely sensitive to our belief and to our faith. The intention of the clip, which is um, like talking about, you know, the clips from the, the, the video was meant to push the envelope of the Christian music community. The problem with a lot of religious and Christian music is that it tends to be watered down. Hmm. Some artists tend to back away from what they really want to say. People respect you more for taking hold of a stance and sticking with it. Brett Atwood describes the the theme of the video as strength despite intolerance. Hmm. So it's really interesting to me. And I think this this kind of connects to um, our final subject for today, which is the cultural ramifications and the cultural ideas that this either reinforced or ignited. Jesus Freak as an album, as a song, like the hitness of it reinforced uh, the already blooming persecution complex that Christians had. Through the 80s and early 90s, you had the, you know, the Red Scare and the godless communists that the America needed to fight against. So there was already this language that Christians were being persecuted on a global scale. But I think what Jesus Freak did was it uh, did what America capitalism, America's capitalism does to everything. And it hyperbolized it, it made it extreme and it individualized it. Mm. And so I think that's what Jesus Freak did sort of on a cultural scale, you know, which is like you need to not back down you cannot uh take no for an answer you cannot compromise you can't say anything soft or with nuance because that's a form of compromise so does that track with your experience yeah absolutely i mean you know it's we sort of have that chicken or the egg question you know mm. of like i don't know how much jesus freak did 
it create this phenomenon or did it just sort of like bolster it? Right. And I'm not sure that's actually an answerable question. I know for me, it's a prominent feature in it. Mm -hmm. I know for sure that it was used as ammunition, um, you know, and I, and for sort of, I mean, I I don't want to use the phrase emotional manipulation, but, but kind of emotional manipulation because it's really powerful song. Um, You know, we had teenagers in my church we had teenagers doing um, like dance routines to it. Um, weird things, weird choreographed things with sticks. Um, if you run in the church, this is probably hard to imagine. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, it was it was shown in in slideshows of the crucifixion. It was paired with cultural events of real martyrs, you know, people who were supposedly, you know, kind of killed for their faith right here in the States. So, you know, it was definitely used to bolster a kind of anxiety about standing up for what you believe in, what will happen if you don't, um, which is rejection from Christ. Right. Um, That was I think that was sort of like the flip side of the conversation, which was like the consequence of not being a Jesus freak was something that was really like heavily impressed upon me, you know, as a kid, which was that you have this choice to be this sort of Christian who will always say yes, you know, if you believe to believing in God, who will always stand up for their faith. And if you don't, there could be actually eternal consequences for that. Um, This sounds really like dire and dramatic, but it's how it was framed for me, you know, that you will get to the pearly gates and your name will not be in the book of life. (laughs) Like Christ will, what was, what's the verse again? Christ will reject you if you reject him. Yeah. It's something along the lines of, um, uh, if you deny me in front of man, I will deny you in front of my father. Right. Um, the other one that it was always paired with in me, I have very vivid memories of like that verse and the, if you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth from revelation. And that was that idea that like, it doesn't matter if you're just a Christian, are you Christian enough to make it to heaven? And like you had to be on fire in a certain level as the phrase on fire for Jesus. And if you weren't, you were in danger of being spat out because if you weren't a freak about it, then you weren't any good. Right. I had such anxieties about that as an adult. It really it smacks of like like the whole if you deny me before others, I'll deny you before my father is kind of just like you didn't. You didn't pick me for kickball. And and now I'm not going to invite you to to my dad's barbecue. And he has all the best people at his barbecue. And you're going to be sorry. Right. It's not a great look for God. No, it it makes him petty. petty. Yes. So So petty. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I've always thought about this sort of the rhetoric of this culture was that it completely denies the possibility of God being all the other things we usually say or hope that he is, which is like merciful and loving. And, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. it makes him, it, do, it it does set up this sort of God figure that's extremely constantly judgmental and extremely constantly petty. Like you have to believe in me, but also you have to believe a ton and you have to believe, nobody knows what that actually really looks like. Right. Uh, you know, and to be fair, a lot of this isn't actually even in the scriptures. This well, is like, sure the division between right like christian culture rhetoric and actual scripture yes i don't even know what you know some of this isn't even there but um it was nonetheless presented as truth to us so i'm speaking about it as mm-hmm. truth you know for sure and i 
I want to use this as a good chance to do a language check about a word we've used once or twice already today, but it's also going to be an important like keyword for our podcast in the future. And that's the word manipulation. Mm-hmm. What Teddy and I are talking about, and again, correct me if I'm speaking incorrectly for you. Sure. Teddy and I are talking about when we say mal- manipulation isn't um, malicious indoctrination so much as it is coding language in such a way as to consistently get the outcome that is desired. I would connect it with sort of the word propaganda on an academic level because propaganda isn't always negative, but in, in the philosophical, like textual analysis realm, propaganda isn't this evil thing that evil people do. It's something that all groups and tribes do when they want a specific outcome. And so it's when that outcome is prioritized over the other consequences of uh, the Communication Act. And what we're trying to do is explain what the other consequences of that Communication Act are, as well as the intended one. So does that track with the way you're using manipulation? Yeah, I think it does. And I think, you know, on one hand, I do want to emphasize that I don't think it was malicious. I think a lot of the people who, you know, have been fluttering across my mind during this whole episode are fine people um, who talked this way and, and who instilled this in me and stuff. I still think that we need to be sort of tread carefully in terms of that, like, intention versus impact truth as well. Right. Yeah. That, you know, um, intentions might have been good. There may have been sincere belief, you know, malicious. You know, it might not have been outright malicious, but some of the consequences, which is what I think this podcast is really dedicated to and more interested in, um, some of the consequences were really horrible, you know? Absolutely. And, and I, I'll start with me. I use this language. I talked this way. I communicated this to people that I was in some level of leadership over. I communicated this way with my friends. Like, I say that only to say that, like, I used manipulative language because it's what I was taught to use. Mm -hmm. And that's something I've had to reckon with and deal with uh, in my like journey through, you know, lowercase D deconstruction. Can you look back at the period of life where you were actively involved in the church and like identify moments where you were sort of intentionally stepping into the Jesus freak identity? Like, were there moments where you were being disruptive, dare I say, inconsiderate, you know, um, do you have memories of that? Does it, does it, does that? Yeah, I, I do. Uh, I'm, I'm feeling a lot of like, I don't want to say shame, but like transitive embarrassment, right. Okay. For like my past self from all of these, uh, like the one that sticks out was, you know, having uh, a sleepover with my friend after watching Final Destination and we're just sitting there like talking about random things and I was like kind of makes you think about where you're gonna go when you die uh, what a and he was like he threw a pillow <laughs> at me and was like dude come on we're just trying to watch a movie and I'm like but it really matters and he was like dude either walk home or shut up and like I remember that I didn't want to walk home he was my you know neighbor, so I could have, but like I didn't want to walk home and end it, so I didn't say anything. And I remember feeling shame for weeks because I you know didn't talk, speak up more. 
And the Jesus freak act in that was you like sort of disrupting an otherwise like kind of casual fun environment with your friend. Right. And yeah. like going for the like, do you know where you're going when you die? Question. Exactly. Which, and that's the yeah. but that's what we are talking about when we say manipulation. Right. Like it's not that I wasn't maliciously manipulating him to think and agree with me. Right. But I was taking a moment that should have been friendship and fun and silliness and light and i was putting cosmic or eternal consequences on it mm. and, yeah. and i think that's a big part of the the martyr and persecution complex um that this sort of tapped into is that like oh you think it's just these everyday things that you just want to be normal you just want to fit in which is what all teenagers want they just want to find a place yes, yes it, absolutely. it's hanging like the fate of the universe on those moments Absolutely. I mean, if there is one thing that this culture did, it was strip the freaking fun out of everything. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, because there really was no such thing as and I can't remember now if you said it, if it was my own brain, there's no such thing anymore as like an ordinary moment. Yes. Everything instead is an opportunity, you know, to be a witness, to share a testimony, to model Christ. And I remember feeling that tension as a kid of And I don't know if I would have been able to articulate it at the time, but kind of just wanting to do fun things sometimes Mm -hmm. and not wanting to have to constantly shoulder, you know, the sort of pressure of I should really be talking to my friends who don't know the Lord or I should really be turning off this music or walking away from this. Mm -hmm. Like it really does. It it expects a lot from Mm -hmm. you. It really does. It's uh, two little anecdotes, I think, that are are wonderful uh, connections to this. The first is I'm always like a panicky person. So when I drive and I'm near other people, I turn my music down if my windows are open. I just compulsively do it at like stoplights where there's a lot of people. It has nothing to do with anything. But I remember when I was first learning to drive and I would listen to a lot of Christian music. Like I, I would like <laughs> turn it down yeah. and I knew what it was for, but I was like, you're being a bad Christian because you're turning down your Christian music and you don't know what that could do for the person. What could they possibly be going through? They could need to hear something encouraging and Jesus-y. Right. And the other thing is, you know, I remember being told this explicitly. I don't remember if it was explicit for you, but um, my sister mentioned that, you know, we were told that if we weren't, taking every opportunity to tell our friends and our family that they were going to hell and that they needed Jesus, that we hated them. Like explicitly, we were told you must hate people. If you are not telling things, if you're not telling them about Jesus, if you're not giving them a way out of hell, if you are not spending every minute you can to the end of saving their soul. Right. You hate them. I don't remember that language in particular, but I definitely remember the the heavy pressure of if you truly believe that when we all die after our short little lives here on earth, that we will burn forever. If we do not believe in Christ, then why aren't you out there every single day talking to everyone? Which, to be fair, good point. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a Penn Gillette point that he made you know, in, a, in a point, you know, Penn makes the the point in this atheist rant that he's going on where he's like how much do you have to hate people if you know like if you actually 
believe this stuff. You should be out there proselytizing every second. And Christians latched onto that as like, see, evangelism, it's important. But he was using it as this, like, if you're not doing it, that means there's a part of you that doesn't believe this. There's a part of you that recognizes that there's a bit of absurdity to this that you're not consciously acknowledging. Right. And paradoxically now, as someone who's outside of the church, I almost... (laughs) And this doesn't make any sense, but it might be because of this. I almost feel like I respect the really extreme evangelist types more than sometimes even like the peaceful, quiet Christians, because I'm like, you know, at least you're owning it. You know, like you truly think I'm going to hell or someone else is going to hell. Like it would make sense if you follow that narrative and embrace that narrative as truth. It would actually make a lot of sense for you to behave this way. For sure. For sure. And I don't mean like logical sense. I mean, no sense within the scope of that reality. Right? Relative to. Yeah. 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 Relative to. Yes. Yeah. So one of the, the ways that this manifested in this culture, and we're, we're not going to spend a ton of time looking at a second artifact today, but one of the ways this manifested in the culture was in 1999, DC Talk paired with the ministry group, The Voice of the Martyrs, mm. to produce and publish a book called Jesus Freaks. And that was a book, sort of a contemporary Fox's Book of Martyrs, which was a a classic like medieval text of martyrs. I can still remember the cover of the book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it had this like pseudo worn look to it. It Mm -hmm. definitely looked like a worn Bible. Like if you printed the image of a worn Bible on paper, that's Mm -hmm. what it kind of looked like. It had the band's uh, emblem emblazed on the cover, and it had these little letters from Toby and Michael and Kevin at the front end of it, and also from the then head of the Voice of the Martyrs uh, ministry group. And so, uh, Teddy, in in our notes, would you please um, look at? Um, we're just going to look at one of these. Uh, would you please read that first paragraph? from toby mac sure okay so this is very early on in the book so it looks like it's page six right yes galileo da vinci william shakespeare martin luther john the baptist these are the strange ones who challenged society with a different way of thinking they were the rebels and heretics of their day but if history is told correctly no man has caused the worldwide stir that jesus christ did two thousand years ago so many people today portray jesus as weak the out-of-date artifact hanging on a church wall or in a stained glass window, hoping for a brighter day. But Jesus was a nonconformist of all time. He took the conventions of religion, tradition, and love and turned them upside down. He faced the political and religious leaders of his day and spoke truths they had never heard before. He walked in our world as the human voice of God. A few things strike me about sort of the goals of this book coded into that just first paragraph of that letter. You know, First of all, that second sentence feels like, uh, you know, an old school Apple ad, right? Think different, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I mean, there's this idea that that being a Christian is countercultural, which I understand where it comes from. I get it. We were steeped in that kind of thinking. But by the same token, most people identify in the country identify as Christian. It's essentially impossible to get elected president if you don't at least voice Christian faith. Especially at the time. Yeah. Especially in the 90s. You just don't get there. You don't have this 
actual like subculture of Jesus. Christianity in one form or another is the dominant culture or defines the dominant culture in some way. Or that which everything else is weighed against or considered against or whatever. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And so there's this clamoring to make or or continue to define Christianity as countercultural. There's also this idea as like all of these thinkers are the strange ones. A very weird grouping, by the way. Shakespeare. (laughs) Shakespeare, Da Vinci. Galileo explicitly told the church that they were wrong. Like explicitly the church hated Galileo. Yeah, it is a weird grouping. It's weird that it's a mix. It's a mix, too, of like secular. It has some secular figures in it, Mm -hmm. too. So that's a little strange. You would almost make more sense for it to be like the, the, the radicals of Christianity. Right. Yeah. Another thing I really spot in this paragraph, which I think was such common rhetoric. Now it's old hat. But back in the 90s, I feel like we had a real, you know, kind of um, emphasis on the there were a lot of great leaders out there, but only one like I don't know. I feel like that was Mm -hmm. like a common rhetoric talking point of the time. Like it was almost in some ways like in your little like it was like your um, things to say to atheists type of, you know, education. Right. It's like, okay, but there's only one God who claimed, you know, who rose from the dead or there's only been one God who's done X, Y and Z or, you know, um, so I feel like that is that channels for me. Yeah, absolutely. That like idea of um, uniqueness. Yeah. Right. That like it's this weird it's this weird uniqueness that's defined in terms of its commonality, if that makes sense. So like anytime I remember anytime somebody saying, well, you know, Gandhi said such and such. But you know what? Jesus said that, but he did it better. Let me tell you how Jesus was better than Gandhi. Right. Right. Like it was this like you have to find the thread line from whatever person or idea they're talking about back to Jesus and then explain how Jesus did that thing, but better. Right. And all religions do this. Christians would never admit that, but you know, most religions do that. And the other thing I really see as, as like a huge staple of this culture as well is the emphasis on Christ, having a relationship with Christ, Christ being this kind of like more living, breathing, bold thing in our lives, as opposed to what, what's the phrase, you know, he uses the out of date artifact hanging Mm. on wall you know there was a real emphasis on how do we make christ how do we make him alive in our lives Mm -hmm. there's also this um the seeds of like the uh mark driscoll hyper masculine jesus in that too right oh jesus always looks weak no he was a carpenter he was freaking jacked and he would (laughs) he would you know eat nails and spit them into the wood and like you know like yeah. There's the shades of this, like, you know, you can't have this frail Jesus. It's got to be, you know, over the top. He's got to be hyperbolic in whatever way he's meaningful to you. That's not so much here, except for that he turns stuff upside down, which. Well, there's, I, the, there's the weak yeah. comment. That's why I said true. that. He wasn't weak. That's true. That's yeah. true. There's the yeah. he, Jesus wasn't weak. And then later he goes on to say that, you know, Jesus was like the boldest right leader and thinker mm. of the time that he stood above all other bold leaders. You know, um, there's uh, also, uh, you know, in his letter references of authenticity and like when our date, you know, our legacy. So there's all of that stuff coded into Toby Mac's uh, letter um, without like delving too deeply and doing close readings of the others. You know, Michael Tate, sort of the thrust of his is. 
he hones in on that idea of what will people think? And he he says the very nature of Jesus freaks is to thrust away from the mob mentality, from the things that society tells us to care about, which is so, again, hilarious to me because the whole Christian message was, well, listen, you can't just do what everyone tells you to do. So do what we tell you. <laughs> right. You know, it was like you can't do what culture tells you to do because there's this culture thing out here. And then there's the call uh, the the church, which is separated and cut clean. If we can borrow DC talks language and you can't do what culture says, but you can do what church says and you have to do what church says. Mm-hmm. So there's this really interesting language of separation. His letter was the most cohesive, like, and focused. It's, I felt, yeah, I felt yeah. like, you know, it started the, the, what will people think? And he just stayed, you know, pretty focused, you know, we're, we're not, it's okay. They're going to think we're weird. Who cares if they think we're weird? It, it doesn't matter. I felt like Toby's was, you know, it was all over the place. And he mm-hmm. starts to talk about like, um, you know, what do you want to be remembered for having a nice car? And it's like, where is, you know, Shakespeare, where is this all coming from? So I, I think I actually liked Michael Tate's the most because it was, it felt like the, the most cohesive to me. Kevin Mack gets into the history of the term. There's also the like real, you know, like tying oneself to the, to the martyrs. Like he, at the end, he says, mm-hmm. I stand with thousands of martyrs around the world today who will face persecution because Jesus means more to them than their own lives or comfort. So there's also something fascinating there about that. I stand with the martyrs who still face persecution. There's this idea of the living martyr. Right. Yeah. The the not yet martyred martyr. Right. Um, and that's a, that's another interesting feature of the book. You know, thinking about the book as an artifact, they actually one of the first pages of the book is a definition of the word martyr. OK, that's all that's on the page. OK. OK. And it says. It's written like a dictionary definition. And the, the, I'm going to read the whole definition. Martyr from the Greek word for witness, which I don't know if that's true. I didn't actually check that. Yeah, I don't know if that's true either. What, definition one, one who chooses to suffer death rather than to deny Jesus Christ or his work. Two, one who bears testimony to the truth of what he has seen or heard or knows as in a witness in a court of justice. Three. One who sacrifices something very important to further the kingdom of God. Okay, we're getting real broad there. Four, one who endures severe or constant suffering for their Christian witness. And five, a Jesus freak. I notice a lot of things about that definition, but we are being very generous with the idea of definition there. Yes. Yeah. You've described a Christian martyr. You haven't described a martyr right described a christian martyr right right i am assuming in a real dictionary if you look up martyr you probably get something about a person who's just killed for their religious beliefs not right christ first definition coming up for me in the most like simplistic google search is actually killed for religious or other beliefs okay cool killed yeah yeah But then notice, again, like you said, we're getting broad. We opened it up from being killed to suffering violence to sacrifices something. It gets vaguer and vaguer so that we can adopt it and hold on to it. 
right? Yes. We, we've reduced the sort of violence necessary for that word so that I, as a, you know, 13 year old white Christian kid in suburban New York can say, I'm persecuted <laughs> because my friend didn't like it when I said, did you ever think about death while we were just trying to have fun? Right. Exactly. It's like the they need to expand that definition. They need to create room within that definition in order to fit all of these small little experiences that at the you know, some of them are like literal like inconveniences. Right. Mm -hmm. That they want to then be marked as persecution. And then in some ways, honestly, like create situations in order to have that claim. Like I'm thinking back to being I, unlike you, wasn't homeschooled in my elementary year. So I went to regular, regular school, you know, K through six. So I got to experience that pressure from the church of like bringing Christ into the public Ooh, school, yeah. the public school systems. Right. There were multiple things like see you at the flag or meet yep. you at the flag or whatever the hell yeah. it was called, you know, where it was like, if you, if you went to that and then later your friend made fun of you or someone made fun of you of your persecution that's you persecution know? yep yeah or somebody thinking you're weird because you're a zealot <laughs> you know right. like right or like opting out of a britney spears song in a jump rope competition example of your persecution it was like they gave us the situations and the scripts so that we would be able to claim yep. or my friend saying what the f is wrong with you why don't you curse right me go then then and like there you go i'm persecuted because i don't use the dirty words right or the real big one too was um the constant pressure to pray at lunch yeah pray at lunch you know be the one who prays at lunch and then there were like all these rules about it like should we actually bow our heads and and fold our hands or you know technically christ hears your prayers if it's just in your head but that's not showing the world anything all these yeah. oh my god these like circular conversations but in some ways, they were all attempts at proving one's status as someone who's persecuted. For me, it became less about proving to the world, like, like giving things out to the world, than it was signaling to the community that I lived in, that I was acceptable, that I was good. Absolutely. It becomes way less about actually undertaking any sincere conversions and more about just postulating for your community and your culture. You know, I remember in Bible college, there was an exam. It was like exam season, like midterms or finals or something. And a bunch of my friends at Bible college were walking through one of the common rooms that I was studying in. And they were like, hey, we're getting people and we're going to we're going to go witness downtown. And I was like, okay, we've got a final at 7 a.m. tomorrow. Have you studied? No, I'll worry about that. I figure, I figure God's going to have me. I'm doing his work and, and that's what's going to matter more. Oh, right. And the reward too. The, little bit the, of the reward is going to be there. more. And, yeah. and really, I, I'm worried about spiritual things. I don't have time for this. I got to get out there. And I was like, okay, I'm going to study. And like, there was a level of, of shame attached to that. You know, I, I think that, it, you know, it, that reminds me too. something I've been thinking is that the more I tried, I think, as a kid, as a teen to claim this kind of Jesus freak identity, the more I tried to 
to to live in the way that they were, you know, this culture was advocating. It honestly became more and more just a battle of ongoing guilt. And that could be partly the kind of person I am. I'm a sort of guilt ridden person to begin with. You but, know. <laughs> but that's all it really became. It's just this mm-hmm. ongoing, constant like battling and negoti- negotiating of like, what could I have done differently? How could I have been more bold and not actually about leading anyone to Christ or, you know, I mean, I didn't convert a single person that I know of. I mean, maybe one of those tracks I left in a random bathroom in New Jersey, you know, led to like a really amazing conversion for someone. But as far as I know, I didn't ever lead anyone, you know, I didn't ever change anyone's mind, but I sure felt a lot of guilt about it all the time, despite trying so hard. <laughs> no, I get that. And and I felt very similarly, you know, I mean, one thing that I think is is kind of telling. So, right, like, like we were just talking about, it's this guilt and shame and signaling really drives home something that it it took me years to unpack, which is that so much of the Christian subculture was about maintaining a stable ecosystem. Mm. Whereas I think more robust subcultures evolve, there was sort of this imperative to preserve. And not that's not to say that that evolution hasn't happened in the Christian subculture. Although I do have a theory that because Christians were so afraid of the idea of evolution, they eventually began to reject all sorts of change. Um, but that's a different conversation. Right. But but I do, I, you know, not that there wasn't change or anything like that, but, you know, for sure, the existence of Jesus freaks as a cultural artifact shows that evolution and change. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, all the mechanisms of the subculture are put in place to solidify uh, membership in that subculture. Absolutely. When I was teaching for a brief stint at a Bible college, I used to tell my students that I hated the idea of using the adjective Christian to describe art mm-hmm. because by all metrics of salvation, you know, like a painting can't, you know, be Christian because it doesn't have a soul and, and thing. I'd use like arguments like that, but, but really it's just Christian just as a signal. It, it comes to mean very little on an on a, a industry level. What would a Christian cultural movement be without a contract? So, Teddy, I'm going to bring up on the screen here the contract at the end of the book. Oh, OK. There actually was a contract at the back of the book. So would you please uh, read? the Jesus freak contract for us that we can all bask in it. Okay. And so just so our reader knows, this is actually on page 315. So we've had quite a lot of stuff to read between (laughs) those letters and now, and this is, I am assuming at the very end, and it's something that the, the reader, the presumed reader is going to like sign and claim after reading all about there is a signature and date signature okay (laughs) all right i will also add that this is not at the very end of the book this is at the end of the historical martyrs section there is another 50 pages of uh under the title persecution in the world today 
wow, it's a long book. I don't remember it being this long. I okay. didn't remember being it this long either until I like rewent into it. So go ahead, read this. So I had like book. an abridged verse. <laughs> okay. So it says in large letters from this day forward. And then it says from this day forward, I will make a difference. Jesus, I thank you that you suffered and died for me on the cross to pay for my sins. Father, I thank you that you raised Jesus from the dead to be my living Lord and Savior. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you will lead me to do the right thing and to change the world. Today, Lord, I want to make you a promise. I will not be ashamed. And those words are the biggest, almost the biggest on the page. I will not be ashamed of your name or your gospel. I will do what I can for those who are persecuted and pray for them. I will look enemies in the eye and love them with your love. I will pray for them and love them no matter what the consequences. I will follow your voice wherever you lead me, unafraid, for I know that you will be with me. If I should stumble, if I should fall, if I should deny your name, if I should feel guilty that I did not pray or forgot to do something you've asked me to do, I will not quit. I will not wallow in guilt. I will turn my back. I will turn back to you, confess my sin, and do what you have called me to do, because that is why you died for me. I will stand with you and my brothers and sisters around the world because no matter what happens, no matter what I face or how it looks in the, in the end, we will be victorious. We will inherit eternity and heaven with you. I can do nothing else because I am a Jesus freak. So proud of you for making that confession. <laughs> I got to make sure I put the date. <laughs> I was going to say, make sure you put the date and then you have to fold it. You have to pray okay. over it and then throw it into a fire. Then we've had a true youth group experience. That's so true. Yeah. So I notice a few important features about this text. The first is it reads almost like a doctrinal statement. It does. You have the invocation of the Trinity language by addressing Jesus, Father and Holy Spirit. It's got the language about um, like the reason for atonement and the act of atonement. And and uh, and heaven language. Yeah, it's actually the language is actually relatively traditional, especially which mm -hmm. is, you know, it, it's noteworthy because of the presence of the like Jesus freak, you know, at the end. And in some ways, the language feels very like we've heard it all before, you know, nothing different. It isn't that remarkable. I will say that there there's the, the remarkable thing to me is I will not quit. I will not wallow. I will not turn back and do what you called me to do because that is why you died. That's what it says. It explicitly says that the reason God died for us is so that we would do what he told us to do. Right. So there's again that sort of like cosmic consequences on every little action that is necessitated for inclusion in this eternal community. What I like, I mean, what I would have, what little teddy would have really liked is that little wiggle room it gives you there in the middle of the page where it's like even if you make a mistake you know you're gonna just you're gonna pray mm. you know and like there's still room for forgiveness oh god i would have loved that loved hearing that so oh, much yeah. you know it would have given me i would have slept a little better at night knowing that was in the contract <laughs> absolutely and there's, there's room for me to stumble that's great so yeah i mean that so like we were talking about before, that's not the end of the book. There's still the martyrdom today. So there's this really interesting like thing that happens as you read through the book where you go through this historical documentation of martyrdom. Then you sign the contract. Then they tell you what the world is like. 
<laughs> which <laughs> feels, you know, like, oh, cool. This is what it's like to like get saved at eight years old in the chapel of a Christian church, right. <laughs> you know, um, and then hit the real world. But notably, Teddy, this book is almost 400 pages long. Would you like to know how many sources are cited in the end notes section? Take a guess. Hopefully 400. <laughs> unique sources, like unique books. Mm-hmm. Five. Okay. Unique authors. Three. Okay. So... I haven't read this book, but, you know, it mentions that it's it's talking all about these like Christian martyrs. So do you read them and and does it feel believable to you or is he are they using like specific names and places? Like, is it like X person in China? I mean, what is going on here? Like, are these without the citations? How do you know what's I'm not asking if it's BS, but I'm kind of asking if it's BS, you know? Yeah. And I mean, the answer to your question is like, no, like it's not confirmable. There are, there's sort of a formula that the more contemporary examples follow. Um, They state at one point that names have been changed to protect those who might be connected to this person. Why though? But then those aren't (laughs) the things that are cited. Teddy, most of the citations are for quotes that are just random, like, like interstitial quotes, not actual stories cited. Okay. Most of the stories follow. This is what this person experienced. And it's sort of like a dramatization. Like most of them read the way like a news documentary might say, not actual footage. Like that's if I could describe the way this book feels, it's that not actual footage. Okay, there is no like real specific grounding. Um, Like I said, there's three unique authors cited in the end notes. Two of them were two of the directors or CEOs of Voice of the Martyrs. Okay, one of one of whom resigned in disgrace after a litany of child molestation charges came to light the other one was fired because he initiated a thorough review of the claims against the former no i'm not even kidding oh no okay that's the foundation uh and again i'm not saying like because they were you know sex offenders like like i'm not i'm not making claims like that but i am saying like you have people who are motivated by their station mm-hmm. to make these claims. Right. And for me, it's telling that I'm not saying it's blatant dishonesty, but I can't help but wonder if like it's not like this book is like pointing to like a bunch of biographies and interviews published in, you know, major journalism right. with actual martyrs. I can't help but wonder if there's some sort of this was hearsay or even if like we're you know, that sort of thing Christians would do. It's like, this isn't like a true story, but it happens all the time. Right. Right. Like, have, yep, you remember, I remember that kind those. of phrase? Yep. Like, this isn't necessarily a true story, but trust me, it happens all the yep. time. And it's like, well, it happens all the time. Why don't you just give me a true story then? You know, right. like there must an be example, example that is documented. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like if it happens all the time, you know. So, I mean, I am not going to go as far to say that there is not like persecution of Christians to this day on a global level and that there weren't 30 years ago. But it is peculiar, the lack of specifics and lack of clarity 
for a book like this not to happen. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. There is one memoir explicitly cited. It's not the one you think it is. It's uh, one I've never heard of. The one that you might think is um, Cassie Bernal. She's the uh, woman who one of the the victims of the Columbine shooting, which this book came out the same year as. Right. So the song. But the song. The song predates. The song is 95. The book is 99. Again, I don't want to make claims, but I want to point these things out. Columbine happened in late April in 1999, April 20th, to be specific. This book was released in August of 1999. So less than four months. What you're saying is a cynic. Certainly not something I am. (laughs) A cynic might say this was a fabulous marketing opportunity. Does look like that is something a cynic would say. Okay. Okay. Especially when you consider that most of the historical examples of martyrdom in the book. And again, I, I skimmed it. I, I plucked a handful. And you didn't read it at the time. And I didn't read it at the time. Um, I okay. read it uh, probably in, in college. So we're talking probably 10 years after its release. I think I picked okay. up maybe the 10th anniversary edition because I was nine. There was a new version in 2020. There was a new version in 2020. Yeah. Stories of those who stood for Jesus, the ultimate Jesus freak. So just to clarify what you and what we were just talking about, about lack of citations and whatever, that was the original version. version. I have not read the Redux. I did glance at it briefly, very, very briefly. Um, Okay. And it just looks like they just made it bigger. It's already kind of big. Okay. But anyway, most of the historical instances of persecution and martyrdom were either drawn directly from the Bible. They're just retellings of Bible stories. Oh, okay. They are stories about the Protestant Reformation and the Inquisition, which is the church killing other church members because they didn't believe in the right kind of Christianity. So we have theological (laughs) disputes causing the martyrdom, not atheists or, or Muslims or whatever persecuting because it's a really interesting framework i'm gonna guess though that in a post 9 11 world the updated version would have a lot more about quote islamic extremism or the original version had a lot about islamic extremism did it okay in the contemporary uh martyrdom like like persecution around the world today in that section there Mm -hmm. are basically everything drawn from three areas the Muslim world, the Russian Soviet Union. Mm, okay. Yeah. And it's again, not incidental that in no. 1999, China, Russia, and Afghanistan, Iran, the places that are American enemies, quote unquote, of the time are targeted as anti-Christian. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are no real specifics given in those sections, just this is where Christian persecution happens. So this is how you should pray. And this is the sort of thing that goes on. And this is how you can help by giving to Voice of the Martyr. Right. The organizations that which funded the book. Yeah. And I think those organizations, they were primarily based on efforts of getting Bibles to those places. Bibles to those places. Um, I didn't look too deeply into the organization itself. I did notice. Yeah, again, different episode. <laughs> the things I'll note about it is there's that sort of sequence of scandals that happened. And the organization was founded under a different name. 
the name the organization was originally founded under was Jesus to the Communist World. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So you sort of see there's this explicit political agenda in the roots of the company. Yeah. That then capitalizes on the fusion of the Jesus freak identifying as a Christian culture and the imminent panic of Columbine. On a marketability level, I'm, I can't entirely decipher if it was brilliant or really stupid to drop the C word. Like, mm -hmm. I, you know, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. By so, C word, you wow. mean explicitly okay. communism. I, I, yeah, I mean communism. Yeah. Thank There's you. There's a lot of C words here. There indeed are. Um, yeah. I can't tell if, you know, that could have been really like a, a great way to bring in more money or a great way to lose money. But I'm pretty sure that the name change happened. I did look at it. It's just not sticking in my brain right now. Right around. You have the fall of the Berlin Wall is the early 90s. That's mm -hmm. about when the name change happens. So there's sort yeah. of this like post-communist world nonsense, which obviously lasted for two seconds. But yeah, so I mean, yeah. I mean, even even the story of Cassie, you know, which is the, the for those of you not familiar listening, Cassie's story is supposedly that uh, the Columbine shooters came through and and were holding guns to kids heads saying, do you believe in God? Do you believe in Jesus? And if they said yes, they were shooting them. By all accounts who are not Cassie's immediate family, mm. including other survivors, that tale has been falsified as, as not, okay. not a correct description of what happened. Uh, the closest uh, Cassie died. And so I don't want to, you know, level any claims about her grieving family or anything like that. But I want to like point out sort of the, the importance of every source except for her family who published a memoir. Like, posthumous memoir about her and 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 a movie even all of that is not corroborated by law enforcement not corroborated by the manifestos of the of the shooters not corroborated by survivors mm -hmm. um the closest thing that there is is another student supposedly had that conversation with a shooter about like had a conversation with a shooter about god in the library before the shooter killed them Right. Well, wasn't there a um, another student, Rachel Columbine? Yes, that's who, the one I'm referring to. I can still like the, the cover of the book is like burned into my brain, the black and white mm -hmm. cover of her like sitting outside. Um, I think it was like Rachel's Tears or something like something that. Something along those lines. Yeah, I don't yeah. remember all the details so, of it. And, and, and to be fair, I don't remember all the details of it because of, of sort of an intentional like space that I left. I didn't want this to be this discussion to be about Columbine or leveling any right. specific claims. But I, I do want to be explicit and none of the, these stories are grounded in, uh, in thorough documentation because mm -hmm. I don't think that's the goal. I think the goal is to, you know, have a moment to capitalize for the, if it's not for money, it's capitalizing for sort of the cultural currency. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I forget who it was who was talking about, um, you know, getting kids to have the urgency of the end of the world, the coming of Jesus. And it's mm -hmm. like, you're you're 16 years old. You're immortal. You know, you'll never die. That's how you feel in that moment. How do I get you to say, hey, listen, you could die at any second. So live for he said the apocalypse, the end of the world, the second coming 
and martyrdom were the two big calcifying things. And so you sort of see how this was used as a tool for that. And it makes sense. You know, the Jesus Freak song, right, was trying to construct a clear narrative that is Christian persecution has been historically constant and persistent and will only get worse with time, Mm -hmm. you know, as we get closer to the quote capital, the end, Mm -hmm. right? So anytime events like this came up and and I I don't want to frame it as like a purely like, um, you know, they were doing it in a purely deceptive way, but those events, those moments, they were perfect, like confirmations that that narrative is true, you know, because if we don't have those events in some ways, then we just have the sort of narrative that is like Christian persecution was probably more something happening in the past. The world's gone a bit better any religious extremist isn't going to is going to be judged a little bit, but eh, not a big deal. You know, yep. like they needed those events in some ways to keep up this sort of storyline, mm-hmm. you know, the story arc. Yeah. In terms of the, the subculture of Christianity in their relation to to the, the, the main cult, mainline secular culture, whatever you want to call it. This was a calcifying moment that really coincided with 9-11 two years later. You have youth culture making Christianity an identity to hold in a particular way. You then have martyr culture, and then you sort of have this religious extremism on the part of other religions and the piercing of the veil of American safety mm. that 9 11 was. Which was a real it was thing. a real thing. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm saying that's why the, I that's why I sometimes tread carefully with the like Columbine stuff, because I'm like, you know, shootings in schools is a legitimate tragedy and problem. And I am not taking, you know, I, I feel so like I feel sensitive about even like critiquing the sort of I think you get what I'm saying, yes. that it feels very fresh, very upsetting, very real to me. Um, so what I keep trying to do is like, you know, kind of tailor my language to being about the the reception and kind of like branding of it by the church mm. as opposed to like the event itself. Yes. And, and I think this is an important like it's not quite a language check, but it's a very important moment, I think, for us to remind everyone that that what scholars do, what academics and theorists do is describe what they see in the culture, not necessarily make value judgments about that thing. Yeah, good check. So, so making a comment about, uh, uh, about Columbine or 9-11, these real tragedies that had real tangible impact in the lives of real people and people feel real grief over these things that are truly tragic. That's other than, that's separate from the goal of saying, here's sort of how culture took that thing. Right. I, I, I don't want to go on an anti-capitalist rant, but I'm, I'm going to have a mini moment and say, this is what capitalism does. Capitalism yeah. takes this tragedy and finds a way to commodify. Absolutely. Absolutely. In some ways, you know, if we point out examples of this in the church, they're just doing what everybody else is doing. Absolutely. You know, so it's like in some ways, like I don't even judge them all that much more than anyone else. I'm just maybe a little bit more bummed about it because it's couched in terms that I think are it's framed as like altruism Mm -hmm. or, you know, sort of martyrdom or or whatever, rather than just kind of an explicit like admittance that like, hey, I wanted to make some money, you know, type of thing. No, absolutely. It's it's taking something that happens all the time 
and applying cosmic or eternal consequences. That is exactly why I think it feels worse to us, especially those of us who grew up in it. Well, Teddy, I think we've taken a quite (laughs) intense romp through uh, Jesus Freak and uh, its cultural implications. Do you have any? There's so much there. I mean, when we first came up with like, what should be our first few episodes? You know, I feel like Jesus Freak came up pretty fast, but I'm not sure that I would have anticipated even how much there would be to say about it. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I don't yeah. think there was either. I took it for granted, I think. Yeah. Well, and 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 I I think that describes our project very well, don't you? Like we yeah. forget um that these things still uh have lingering ramifications. I believe uh this is one of your phrases, you know, it's it's going on in the background. Absolutely. Absolutely. And now we're getting to, which is kind of cool, you know, we're getting to ask the questions and do the poking and the interrogating and all of that, that we didn't get a chance to do. And I love that. I love that for us. I love that. For us. <laughs> all right. Well, for all of you, all right. thank you for less uh, lasting this thank long you. listening with us. Really appreciate. Be sure to look us up on all the social medias. We are on Instagram and Facebook. Right, Teddy? Yeah. So follow us. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Uh, Okay, we're going to just cut it there. Okay, great.